Okay, so the, the question this morning that I want to ask you is, do you know the feeling, and I know a lot of you do, <clears throat> of what it feels like to finish something? Oh, man. Where's Angela Young, right? Just finished her coursework, right? Let me tell you what. When I finished my last class in my school this past May, oh my word, just being able to turn that last assignment in and go, I am done. I'm done. I'm never going back to school again in my life. This was a dumb idea, and I'm glad it's over. No, I didn't say it was a dumb idea. But it probably takes the form of a million, trillion different things, whatever it is. You get done cleaning your room. You get done with your homework. You get done trimming your beard. I don't know. But that, that, that sense of completion, of finality, of I don't have to do this again, is a really, really, usually, really good feeling. Especially something that's taken a long time, something that... Uh, well, I mean, that's why we make such a big deal out of high school graduation, right? Thirteen, which now they do preschool, pre-K, pre, pre-birth, pre-all this stuff. they got classes for everything. So really, like, this 12-year thing has turned into 15, 16 years. But we make a big deal about it because you finished your schooling. And when we finish something, we what? We celebrate. Woo! We're done. What we're going to see today, and we're going to get through, we are, by the grace of God, going to get through Ezra 5 and most of 6 today, and we're going to see these Jews finish this temple. Now, I don't know what it's been like for you all, thinking about what they've been through. and I mean, we've only been in this book a few weeks, so we don't really grasp the enormity of 20 plus years of activity and activity, activity, and opposition, and overcoming opposition, and giving in to opposition. But I want you to think about this morning what it feels like to finish. What it feels like to complete something. And that's what we're going to see with our returned exiles today. <clears throat> We've got a, um, a lot to read. So if you would, stand with me as we engage the Word of God. And again, hear what I just said. As we engage the Word of God. These are God's very words. Starting in Ezra 5.3. At the same time, Tadani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But... The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bazani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report, in which was written as follows, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them for their names, for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. 
We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then the Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem and from that time until now it has been... In building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which was written, A record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be sixty cubits, and its breadth sixty cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bazanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover... I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons." Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Almost done, y'all. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai the governor of the province beyond the river... Shithar Bazanai and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. 
And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Let's pray. God, we sing this morning and we pray again, speak. Have your way in us and through us as your word penetrates our hearts and your spirit works it into our lives. Change us and make us more like Jesus as a result of spending time together in your word today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So let me set the stage one more time for where we've been. Last week we left our returned exiles having just received the Word of God through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And after receiving these divine words, the Jews started back to building the temple, which they had abandoned 15 or 16 years prior. Haggai had given them the direct rebuke of calling them to consider their ways and for them to realize that it, had, that it had been time for them to build and panel their houses while they were saying it wasn't time to build the temple. Again, the one thing they were sent back to Jerusalem to do. And then Zechariah had given broad visionary prophecies to paint a picture, even if that picture is a little bit odd, of God promising to work well into the future, even giving messianic prophecies which they surely did not fully understand, even though they might have thought they had a grasp on it. So the direct word for today from Haggai, the encouragement for tomorrow and into the future from Zechariah. And so they worked again, finally. Now we come to the start of today's passage. And what do we find right away? Look at 5.3. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the providence beyond the river, and Shethar, Bazani, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? So here's the picture. The prophets were prophesying, God was speaking, and the workers were working, and at the same time, here comes opposition. Opposition. They were no strangers to opposition. Tatanai, who was called the governor of the province beyond the river, and what that refers to is it refers to the land of the Persian Empire that was to the west of the Euphrates River. So I wish I'd have put a map up there. That's what I meant to do and forgot to find it. So let me, let me do it from your perspective, okay? I'll put a dot on the map here for the capital of the Persian Empire. And then if you go west, am I going west to y'all or am I going east? Okay, let me start over here then. Okay, here's the capital of the Persian Empire. If you go west this way, then you've got the Euphrates River. Anything west of the Euphrates River is this province that Tatanai and his associates were governors over. That was a big province. And Jerusalem was in that province. Now get this straight. Israel is not an independent nation at this point. They're being ruled by the kingdom of Persia. Cyrus had said, go back to Jerusalem and build the temple. He didn't say go back to Jerusalem and be independent. So they're under Persian rule and they're in this province west of the Euphrates River and this guy Tatanai and his associates are governors there. And he was appointed to do that, to be that governor of that province, to govern this province where Jerusalem was located. 
So it's a large area. And let me, and let me just say, Tatnai probably had his hands full. So he and his associates come and find this building project going on in Jerusalem. Now keep in mind again, it had been 15 or 16 years since any such work had been done. So he may not have even been governor when they were building before. So he comes to Jerusalem and what does he see? He sees these Jews building a large structure of stones and lumber. So he says, what are y'all doing? Well, we're building a temple. He's like, "Mm mm-hmm, a temple. And he's probably got in his mind that they're doing something militarily. Jews were notorious for wanting to be independent because they're God's people, God's chosen people. We alone are God's chosen people in the world. Everybody else is a Gentile dog. So the governor comes and they're building this huge structure with huge stones and timber. And he's like, what are you doing? Who told you to do this? Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Listen, that's his job. I don't think this guy Tatna is a bad guy. And just because you're a bad guy doesn't mean you're a bad guy, right? <laughs> Some of y'all get that. So I, I, he's just doing his job. But he is opposition, nonetheless. He's not really asking an unreasonable question. And then this. They also ask them, what? Next verse. What are the names of the men who are building this building? So if you are doing something you shouldn't do, we want names. Why? So we can prosecute. So y'all can't wiggle out and say, well, those people are gone. We want names. Okay? When the private investigators come and they're talking to people, they want names. They want implications. Somebody that they can implicate in this thing. So he wants names. We're going to make sure we know who to implicate so we can punish the people responsible for this because this, Tat and I was thinking, this is not okay. So now here's my question. How do our Jewish friends react here? The last time they met resistance, 15, 16 years ago, they folded up like a cheap lawn chair, right? They just quit. And that was just some locals who were intimidating them. Now it's the government the officials in charge of keeping peace and order. Now, how would they respond to them? Verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Now, before they reacted out of fear and discouragement while looking at the circumstances around them. So they're looking at the circumstances around them in its previous opposition, and they just stop. Now, however... The focus is not on them, is it? The focus here is on God and His work in and through them in this moment. It says, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. That's what the text says. It doesn't say they did this or they did that or they stood up and they defended themselves and said we've got a First Amendment right, a free speech. Oh, no, that's not them. That's us. It doesn't say what they did. It says, but the eye of their God was on the elders. So what was the result? So they, the opposition, the government, did not stop them from building until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Now how long is that going to take? It's going to take a little while, y'all, because they didn't just have UPS, you know, what can Brown do for you, Tat and I, put it in an envelope, send it to guy, we'll have it there tomorrow. By 8 a.m. guaranteed, if you want to pay enough. They didn't have that. Now they had nice roads. The Persians built some really nice roads. 
and they had a postal type of service. Why do they call it a post office? Because there were posts all through these things where they would get fresh horses. They say about every 15 miles, they had a post where they'd get fresh horses to carry these letters and things like that. So they had good roads, but it's still going to take a while. We said it took from one up to four months for the Jews to get back from Persia to Jerusalem. Now, one person riding a horse can go faster than that, but let's say it took a month to get to Darius. And then they've got to investigate and see if they can find this document. And then they've got to send a letter back. So it would have been real easy for the Jews to say, eh, we just better stop until we hear something. And they would have done that if it had been up to them, I think. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And these government officials did not stop them until the report should reach Darius. Now, who do you think caused that to happen? It just, it just happened. Oh, well, you guys go ahead and work on it until we get word. No, it says that God directly, providentially intervened here so that they didn't stop them from building. Now, tuck that away because that's very, very important. They didn't stop. And they didn't stop because God looked out for them. And that's what's important. God and His providence made it possible for them to keep working. It wasn't a demand to stop work until the governor and his cronies heard something. Instead, it was hand to the plow until they heard otherwise. Church. And God did that. So now we see the letter that Tatani sent to Darius. And there's lots of juicy bits in here. Let's look at verses 6 through 17. Here's the letter. This is a copy of the letter that Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bazani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. Here's the letter. You ready? They sent him a report in which was written as follows. Now this is a letter. Read it as a letter. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. By the way, do you see names in this letter? No, you don't. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Cyrus said to Sheshbazar, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then... This Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building, which that's not completely true because they took 15 years off or so, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, they say to Darius, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of his house, of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So you see the letter. You got it framed, right? Okay, you know what's going on here. 
the governor and his guys asked them, who told you to do this and who are you? Now note the Jews reply. Let's go back to verse 11 because this is really kind of the, the centerpiece of what's going on here today. And their reply to us, and this was their reply to us, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago which a great king of Israel built and finished. Now remember, this is the Jews replying to Tatnai when they asked them, who told you to do this? Very important that you understand that. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then the Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now has been in building and is not yet finished. So that's the Jews' answer to Tatnai when he asked them, Who told you to do that? Who told you to do this? And we're going to spend some time here, okay? This is, again, like I said, pretty important. First, they identify themselves how? Boo, boo, boo. I've lost my place. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Who are you? Who told you to do this? I'll tell you who we are. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. Now earlier in the letter, Tatnai had called God the great God. Okay, that's all right. But the Jews go further and say that they serve the God who is over heaven and earth. Or in other words, all creation. Even your king. And they are building a house for Him like a great king had done long ago in Jerusalem. And that would be in reference to Solomon and the temple he had built. And then watch this. Verse 12. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Now to me, this is the big deal in today's passage. All this that we read in 5 and 6, this is the big deal. What happened to this temple that was built in Solomon's time? Grand, beautiful, powerful, majestic. The Shekinah glory of God came and dwelt there to the point that the priests couldn't minister in this temple when they dedicated it because the presence of God was so strong. What happened? But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Now there's a lot going on in that statement. First, there is a confession of sin. Our fathers angered God. How? By building a house for Him? Nope. By sinning. And He told them specifically by not giving the land its Sabbaths and other sins over their history. It wasn't just that, but that was one of the primary. He said, the land's going to have its Sabbaths because you didn't give it to them. I'm going to take you out of the land and give the land its Sabbaths. They sinned and God was angry with them. 
just like God had told them time and time again through the prophets, calling them to repent and change their ways. But they didn't. And their discipline came in the form of a conquering army invading the land and them being deported out of the land. Now my question is, who did the disciplining here? Was it Nebuchadnezzar? Yes. But Nebuchadnezzar was the belt he spanked their bottom with. And he was God. God did this through a foreign king and a pagan culture. They sinned and God disciplined them. So they recognize being God's servants, we're the servants of God of heaven and earth, and they recognize God's disciplining them as His people for His glory. And they don't say that specifically here, but what God does, He does for His glory. So they serve Him for His glory and He disciplined them for His glory. So that's a really big statement. We serve God, we didn't serve Him well, and He disciplined us. Now listen, they're confessing their father's sins. They weren't around then. Some of them were, a few of them were, that saw this house destroyed. But most of these people weren't the ones who did the sinning. But you see the association, we, our fathers, and God, the same God who's over us now, disciplined them. We didn't serve Him well and He disciplined us. That was their initial reply to the governor's request of what they were doing and who were they. Now, did they really answer His question? Kind of, sort of. They answered it with what was definitely important to them. What are you doing? What we should have been doing 15 years ago. And we're a lot like our fathers who sinned and faced the discipline of God. We can associate with that. And they're going, who are you people? I just want to know who you are. Give me names so I can write them down. And you don't see those names. They go on to detail how Cyrus had decreed that they should come back and build this house they were building, giving details of how it was to all take place as Cyrus gave them the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken away, placing them in the care of Sheshbazar. And by the way, Sheshbazar is probably the court name for Zerubbabel, their governor. Zerubbabel, Sheshbazar, same person. Okay? What's your name, Will? His name's Nathaniel. Anybody here call him Nathaniel? No. Okay, so, I mean, it's not weird for people to have two different names. Some people say, it's it's one of them uh, contradictions in the Scripture. No, it ain't. I mean, that's easy. Don't come at me with that weak stuff. You know, come at me with something stronger than that. Most people have at least two names. So anyway, Sheshbazar Zerubbabel, governor. That's what we're looking at. Okay? Could have been a court name, whatever. He was the prince of Judah, the governor of these people. And again, he's not the governor of the province beyond the river, but he's these people's leader. Okay. Uh, so from start to finish, the Jews recognize and proclaim God's sovereignty in their being His people, in Him disciplining them, and Him being behind their coming back to the land and ordering them to rebuild His temple. We serve God. We didn't serve Him well. He disciplined us. He restored us. And now He's leading our building project as per Cyrus, telling them to go do it. And remember, he had proclaimed 150 years before Cyrus was born, I'm going to appoint a guy named Cyrus to send my people back to the land. So who was behind it all? God was behind it all. And they wanted to make sure that the people asking what was going on understood this is God. 
Our God told us to do this. Now, 16 and 17. Then the Sheshbazar, Zerubbabel, came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus king, the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So then the Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations. And from that time until now, it's been building. It's not yet finished. So they're basically saying, hey, would you tell us what to do here? Would you tell us, let us know. This is what's happening. Will you search and see if what they said is really true and if it's okay with you? Okay, so that's 16, 17. Now, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written. Now, can you imagine this process? Now, we, we go online and it takes us like, Seven minutes to find something. Oh, I don't even know what to search for. These folks were looking through old scrolls in an old citadel, in an old city, in something they weren't familiar with. Scrolls! Scrolls! And they found one. Poof! How do you think they found it? Might have been Providence. And they found a scroll on which was written a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt. The place where sacrifices were offered and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem each to its own place. You shall put them in the house of God. So Darius searches and finds a scroll detailing just what the Jews had said and then some. I'll look back at 3 through 5 just real quick. He gives some pretty specific detail. It happened in the first year of Cyrus the king. He says, let the house be rebuilt. Let its foundations be retained. So use the old foundations. Clear them off. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits. That's pretty specific. He even tells them what size it should be. He tells them to use three layers of great stones which, if you remember, Tat and I said they're using big stones and timber. Well, that's because that's what they were told to do. And one layer of timber, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. So the king even said, I'm going to pay for it, y'all. And then he says this, let those vessels that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar be brought back to the temple in Jerusalem and put them in its place. You shall put them in the house of God. So that's pretty specific, right? So how do you think Tat and I and his buddies felt when they read that? I think they felt relieved. Glad yeah, I'm glad we asked. <clears throat> 6 through 12. Now therefore, Tatna, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Baz and I, and the, your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Love that. Let the work on this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of this God on its site. Moreover, I, Darius, Make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, 
Let that be given to them, and day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, it gets better, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict that I, Darius, am making, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused His name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, high king, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Darius says, keep away. Leave them alone and let them work. Even more than that, pay them to do the work from the tribute that you're exacting in your province. So take the taxes that you're taking from these people and other people and give it to them and whatever they need. Animals, wheat, salt, wine, oil, whatever they need, give it to them daily and without fail so they can present offerings and sacrifices to God. And Darius' desire was selfish so that they might pray for him, but it produced good results for the Jews. And then he marks it with some grave consequences if they don't agree and comply. This is pretty grave, right? I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Dang, y'all. And then he calls on God to exact justice on anyone who alters Darius' decree and tells them to get busy doing what he told them to do. Well, alrighty then. So then what happened? We finish 13 through 18. Then... According to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazanai and their associates, I love this, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. That's why I said I don't think Tatnai's a bad guy. He just shows up, they're building, he's a little freaked out. Who told you all to do this? Let's make sure it's right. Word comes back from Darius, he says, all right, we do it with all diligence what the king has ordered us to do. I like that about this guy. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So Tatnai and his associates comply and do what they're told to do. They do it with all diligence. And then the elders and the Jews worked and prospered how? Come back to that. Through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. Now don't, these guys are still hanging around. They're still prophesying. They're still bringing the Word of God. And the people of God are prospering under receiving the Word of God. And I'm here to say, and I believe with full conviction, if Haggai and Zechariah aren't there doing their part, these people aren't prospering. They were there bringing God's Word to challenge, strengthen, and encourage them. And then these words, they finished their building. What a monumental moment. Can you imagine setting the last stone, the last chisel, it's done. Feels good. They finished their building. They did it. 
Finally, kings, prophets, priests, governors, workers, stopping, starting, and everything in between finally comes to this. It's done. And verse 15 says, They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. God, as the ultimate authority, used the earthly rulers to get His work done. Now, side note, why Artaxerxes here? Where is Artaxerxes? I lost him. He's in there, I promise he is. There it is. Because let me set let me set time frame again here. If you'll remember, the guy who's writing Ezra is writing from the future. We saw that back in chapter 4. Remember, you had that parenthetical section in chapter 4 where he's saying this happened, this happened, and then he goes on this long diatribe about some other kings and all this stuff, and it says, and the work ceased. If you, if you weren't here, you'll have to go back and listen to that message. That's the same type of thing that's going on here. The temple was completed according to the end of verse 15, on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the, king, of the reign of King Darius. That would put it in the year 516 B.C., which is about 21 years after their return. But Artaxerxes, now keep 516 B.C. in your brain, Artaxerxes ruled from 465 to 424. And we're counting backwards because it's before Christ. We're going from big to small. That's 50 to 75 years after the temple's completion. Now why would the writer throw that in here? Why would he mention Artaxerxes here? Because whoever's writing Ezra, he's writing from the future, he's writing it as a historical event in light of not just the temple being rebuilt, but the city itself being completed with walls and reinforcements and all. Life returning to normal in Jerusalem with protective walls and religious rituals. And the writer's just reminding them that God used kings then for the temple and used kings for the rest of the building and work which is what we'll see in the rest of Ezra and through Nehemiah. Again, kind of like what we saw in chapter 4 in that same vein of thought. We saw Artaxerxes there too in that passage. And then, so just, just so you know, he just mentions Artaxerxes because it's fresh on his mind. It happened in that time too. Just kind of a tack on there. God used Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes to encourage the Jews and to give them what they need. And then after they finished the temple, they dedicated it by offering 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and 12 male goats. Do the math. 712 animals. Am I doing that right? Six, seven, yeah. That's a lot of animals and that's a whole lot of blood, y'all. And then they set the priests and Levites in their divisions for the service of the temple for the worship of God. And they set up these sacrifices and priestly divisions. How? Kind of as they wanted them. Willy-nilly, however works, whoever's best qualified, whoever looks the best, whoever's wearing the nicest clothes. No, they set all this up for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. This wasn't willy-nilly, it wasn't random. They built God's house and now they will worship Him in the way that He told them to back in the first five books of the Bible. That's the book of Moses. God's clear directions had been preserved and now they refer to them. This both pleases God and also ties them to their ancestors and their Jewishness, yoking them to their past so they could live in the present with eyes on the future and preserving their heritage from God. Again, they're living amongst pagan cultures now 
And if they don't set them off, set themselves off distinctly from the culture around them and do things God's way, they're going to be like those Samaritans we talked about a couple of weeks ago who, who were syncretists who merged worship of God with worship of foreign pagan deities and do what they want to do. So they go back to the book to find out how they should worship. God's people worshiping God God's way. Finally. All these years later. Now, how do we apply this? First, there is a non-application point, which I very rarely do. Let me be clear about something. With all this talk about the government and the government funding and government given to the people of God, this is not a text that is saying that God will always make the government work for you, Christian. We are dealing with Jews in the Persian Empire in the 500s BC. This passage is not dealing with America in 2017. I need to make that clear. Because I think we want that special treatment, that special protection from the government. Because we're Christians, y'all. And we're a Christian nation. And our government should realize that. And if they're not protecting us and giving us special privileges, they're not acting according to the Bible and its desire for His people. That is not what this passage is saying. Stop whining. We live in a pagan culture, y'all. And yes, all authority is from God, but they don't owe us a thing. The government owes us nothing. So don't use this passage to say, well, see there, when we're right with God, God will appoint leaders who will take care of us. No. Okay? No. That's not what this passage is saying at all. And that's an important aspect of biblical interpretation. We're dealing with pre... We're talking about B.C. Jews. We're not talking about present-day Americans. So we can't interpret this passage of Scripture through our cultural eyes. It doesn't work. Now, it would be great if that was true, but it's not. So that's a non-application point. Don't apply that because it's not applicable. Yeah, he very well might send us an hero. You're right. So that was a non-application point. Now, three application points, and they start with the word uh, the word. They start with the letter F. I don't know that I've ever done it. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, I think I have. Anyway, too many jokes popping into my head that are not appropriate for this. First application point is follow. The second is father. And the third is focus. Follow, father, focus. Father, follow, father, 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 father. Follow, father, focus. Follow, father, focus. Did you hear me? It's follow, father, focus. So follow. Now, having said what I said about the government not being here to work for you in your favor, Christian, follow. Work through the authority that God has placed in your life. In the home, in the workplace, in your worship, in your nation, we are not revolutionaries. We are not those who are trying to overthrow the system. Now, we are a force for good, and we vote our conscience like good Americans should. But we're not here to overthrow the government. 
We're not here to fix the government. Now, we can help do our part by voting, but we follow. We Christians are followers in that we recognize authority in our lives. If we have authority, we recognize that that authority has been given to us by God and we lead in a way that is Christ-like. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Having washed her with the cleansing of the water of the Word and laying down his life to the point of death to go to Philippians chapter 2. So if you've got authority, recognize that that authority is from God and lead with that authority. But we also follow as Christians. Recognize the authorities in your life and work under that authority. That's why church is so important. There are no freelance Christians. It just doesn't work. If you've got no authority structure over you, you're not following the authority that God has placed in your life. And I'm not going to beat that dead horse, but when you're at your job, you should be the best employee at that place. And you should be the most cooperative and the most respectful of the people who are over you than anybody else in that place. Well, they're jerks. Okay. They are the authority that God has placed in your life. And therefore, you follow them. You don't agree with everything they do, but you follow them and their orders. Hamlet is not here. Okay? He's my boss. He tells me to wear a tie. Let me tell y'all what, y'all. I hate to wear a tie. And if you don't tell him, there's sometimes I don't wear a tie up there. But when I don't, I feel real funny because he tells me to wear a tie. He's the authority in that position, and I should wear a tie because the authority says to wear a tie. Recognize the authorities in your life and submit to them in a Christ-like way. We as Christians are followers. I love the response of the Jews here. They said, we're doing what the authorities told us to do. Go and make a search and see if it isn't true. And sure enough, they found that it was true, and they came back, and the governors and all these people said, all right, keep on working, and we're going to help you. And they didn't say, you got no right to tell us what to do. We're, we're followers of God. Now listen, if they'd have come back and said, stop working, then they'd have said, you have no right to tell us to stop working. Because... The earthly authorities and the heavenly authority have told us to do this and we're going to do it. Later on in the New Testament, you see Peter, John saying, you tell us if it's right for us to not preach in Jesus' name. But as for us, we've got to. So there's a time to rebel against authority, but it's not normal for the Christian. We are followers. We see authority. We respect authority. And if we are authorities, we wield that authority in a Christ-like way. So follow Work through the authority that God has placed in your life. Wives. Second point, father. Now I had to reach a little bit for this one. I'm going to be honest with you, okay? To find the F word. <laughs> I knew something like that was going to happen. To find a word that starts with F that worked for this application point, okay? So we, we follow... And what I want you to see is your Father, God, is sovereign over the affairs of men. That's how we know that we can follow the authorities in our lives because ultimately they're going to give an answer to our Father. God 
orchestrated it so that the Jews didn't have to stop working while word was sent to see if this was really true. And then God, who had appointed Cyrus 150 years before he was born to make the proclamation, also providentially made it so that the Medes and the Persians were excellent record keepers. And if they made a proclamation, it could not be undone. When we get into Esther in a few weeks, you're going to see that. It says, let it be written according to the rule of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be altered. So it's not this Democrat-Republican thing where the Democrats come into office and undo everything the Republicans did for the last eight years, and then the Republicans come into power and undo everything that the Democrats did for the last eight years. The, the coming-in king looks back and says, I can't undo anything that the former king did. God orchestrated it that way so that they couldn't say, well, I know that Cyrus said they could build this temple, but we don't want it built providentially God intervened 150 years before Cyrus's birth, raised Cyrus up, who made a decree that could not be altered. And he even decreed, and they wrote it on a scroll that they found later in some musty building in Persia. Guys, this didn't happen by chance. So I look to my father when I'm worried about the affairs of men, when I'm worried about madmen in North Korea launching ballistic missiles that could reach the eastern coast of the United States. Is that concerning? Yeah, it's concerning. But who's sovereign over every molecule in the universe? God is. My father is. And I've said it here before, and I don't remember who said it. I think it was John Piper who said, the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow that I lay my head on every night. And I go to sleep because God, oh, it's so cliche, God is in control. But listen, He is! God is in control of North Korea. God is in control of Gog and Magog. God is in control of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Ultimately, God is in control of where the capital of Israel is. Not Donald Trump. God uses authorities, but ultimately, your father is sovereign over the affairs of men. Man, that's the thing about what Will said this morning. You talk about indestructible joy? This is my father's world. He created it. He's got a plan that He is working to perfection which culminates with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when you're worried that this thing is spinning out of control, I promise it's not. Amen. When you're worried about your building project maybe getting put on hold because the governor's raising a stink, go and check and see if it isn't written. And trust God to bring word back to accomplish His will. His will, not this will. The best Will Smith. No holds barred. No questions asked. So follow, Father. God is sovereign over the affairs of men. And here's the last point, and this is what I really want to drive home, and this is very raw for me right now. Focus. Follow, Father, focus. Focus. 
There are a million things screaming for your attention in your life. And if you're a mother, there's 10 million things screaming for your attention in your life. I get it. Do what you know God has said to do. You may not have clear direction as to what to do when your first kid leaves the house. You may not know that yet. Or when your last kid leaves the house. Or if you're ever going to have kids. So plan, but don't make that the focus of your life. Focus on that thing or those things that you know God has called you to do. Micah would say, Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You want it funneled down for you? There you go. In the choices that I make, in the decisions that are in front of me, I want to do justly. I want to love mercy, and I want to walk humbly with my God. And there's a world of minutia out there that we get caught up in. And what should I be doing? And should I be doing this? And is this the best thing for my present and my future? And what if I haven't learned from my past? And we're worried about all these things. And this is what I would ask you to do to help you focus. Check your heart. What's going on in your heart? Deep in your heart, are you more concerned about yourself and your wants and your desires than you are about God's will and God's kingdom? And be honest with yourself. What are you most concerned about? Are you concerned about what God has required of you? Or are you more concerned about what you're getting for Christmas? Are you focused on the things of God or are you focused on yourself? When the Jews were self-focused, they were easily diverted and distracted. A little bit of opposition from the locals and they just packed up house, went home and got their own things in order. Paneled their own houses. Now when they had a mind to work and when God stirred up their spirit through the Word of God and they were doing the thing that God had called them to do, that one thing that God had called them to do, they continued their work when opposition came. Oh, we are so easily distracted. I do my studying and my preparation for this on a computer. You want to talk about distraction? I need to look up the Shesh Bazaar thing. Oh, look. The Yankees traded for Giancarlo Stanton. Awesome. Tell me more. (coughs) And just like that, I'm off track. What am I focused on? What are you focused on? Am I focused on myself or am I focused on the work of God? And they work to the point of completion. This is where we started. Let me ask you this. Husband, father, wife, mother, children... Worker, what unfinished tasks remain in your life? Maybe it's so unfinished and you're at the point where you're just so discouraged about it, you think this just can't be done. And maybe you've 
folded up your tent and went home and you're just focused on getting what you want and doing what you want to do because it's the easiest thing to do at this point in time. That's what we call in biblical circles sin. S-I-N, selfishness. And let me ask you, point blank this morning, Christian, are you focused on yourself? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. So what do we do about it? We submit ourselves to the Word of God that comes to correct our deficient behavior. We recognize the authority of our Father who is in heaven. We follow Him and we focus on doing what He has called us to do. Now listen to me, Christian. Listen to me, follower of Jesus. You cannot do that with unconfessed sin in your life. You can't do that if you're continued to focus on yourself, which is sin. So this is a call for confession. Confess your sins one to another. Ooh! What? Can't I write them in my journal? Go ahead and write them in your journal. But what about grabbing a brother or sister and saying, man, I have been so stinking selfish recently. And I need you to pray for me because it's sin in my life. And I'm so concerned about me and myself and mine. And I'm so concerned about wowing my kids with Christmas gifts that I have forgotten that the dawning of indestructible joy has come. Especially in this season, we are so consumed with ourselves and we forsake the work of God. And again, this is raw for me. This week has been... When God puts His finger on it... (laughs) hurt y'all and it should it should because I've got my hands clasped around something that he's saying I need to give up and when I don't give it up myself he yanks it from my hands he does because he loves me enough as my father to take those things away from me that hinder me from following him and I make it painful when I try to hold on to it for myself These Jews had lost that selfishness. They had submitted themselves to the Word of God and they were doing the one thing that God called them to do. So this last application point again is what? Focus. Focus on what matters in your life. Focus on the will of God and do that. Confessing, repenting of, and forsaking those sins that keep you from that focus. That singular focus. That everything I do filters through this focus, which is the glory and the will of God. Anything outside of that is sin. It's a lot to swallow. We follow, we trust our Father, and we focus on Him and His will, and we finish what He's called us to do. Faithful is He who called you, and He will surely bring it to pass when He's the power, when He's the force behind it, it's going to get done. So follow, Father, 
and focus to completion. Let's pray. God, we are very distractible. And you know that. You're not surprised by that. You're not taken aback by that. Covering your mouth and shaking your head. But you look at us as a loving Father and whom you love, you discipline. So God, we welcome your discipline in our lives. Bring us back to what's important. Bring us back to the sole focus of our lives, which is you, God, you, Father. For our good and for your glory. And you alone can do this in our lives, God. Strip us of these things that are selfish. And help us in this Advent season, God, to see this indestructible joy that you've placed in our lives through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He cried out on the cross, it is finished. It is completed. And he sat down at your right hand to show that the work was done. May we be like him, laboring until we find that perfect rest when we are made complete in Him on that day. You are our Father, and we thank You for that. Help us to follow You well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And you stand to receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.